Hello? Hello. Okay. <clears throat> I'm recording on two separate Skype recorders. I know one is definitely working. Hopefully the new one will be working as well. This episode of Just One of the Guys is dedicated to Mr. Michael Bradley, who is having his birthday on the day of this release. I hope you enjoy the show, and I hope you enjoy the coverage of the book that we're covering. Yeah. And welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by me, Sean Inkle, and hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hello again. I'm here doing my job to cover the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Reese. And this time out, we're actually going to be covering books that have all those people in them, sometimes in uh, different guises as well. First off, we're going to be covering Green Lantern number 105, which is the penultimate issue of the Emerald Knight storyline. Hal Jordan is back, as you've known over the past couple issues, and this time, so is Parallax. But it's not Hal Jordan. What it is, kind of. And there's a bunch of timey wiminess and wibbly wobbliness, and yeah, I, I don't get it either, but we'll get into that. But however, the one thing that I'm really looking forward to is our second book this time out. Back in the mid-90s, I think 1997 actually, Marvel and DC were actually speaking to each other. And they actually published a bunch of books which amalgamated their characters into the Amalgam Universe. And this second wave of books brought us the book that we're going to be covering in our second spot tonight, Iron Lantern. 
And if you know anyone who loves Iron Man, you know that that person should be my guest that I'm having on the show today, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Luke, thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me back, Sean. It's been been too long since I've been on Just One of the Guys. Well, I'm glad to have you back, and I'm glad that you suggested this book. I I had looked at it for a while, and the Amalgam Universe was something that I talked about with uh, Michael Bradley a while back when we covered the Green Lantern Silver Surfer book. And when I heard that Iron Lantern was a part of it, I wanted to get a hold of it. And you mentioning it finally gave me the impetus for it. And I'm so looking forward to covering it. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a ton of fun. And hey, the you know, the, the Green Lantern story is pretty crazy here, too, with all the time travel and, and Hal and Hal and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's building up to something big, obviously. So, you know, this this Emerald Knight storyline, if you've been following it, it's really some good stuff here. But we're going to get into the coverage of that as well as Iron Lantern uh, right after we take this uh, podcast promo break. So stay tuned. We'll see you on the other side. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown, 
an unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. So let's go ahead and jump right on into our first book this time out. It's Green Lantern number 105. It had a cover date of October 1998 and a release date of August 12th, 1998. Had a cover price of $1.99 US and 285 in the Canada, in the Canada, whatever. The title was Emerald Knights Part 5, Haunted by the Past. The writer again was Ron Mars. Pencilers out this time out were Jeff Johnson and Scott Eaton. The inkers were Bob Wycheck and Don Hudson. Colorist was Rob Schwager. Letterer was Chris Eliopoulos. Associate editor this time out was Chuck Kim. And the main editor was Kevin Tooley. Hoping to meet up with former Green Lanterns John Stewart and Guy Gardner at Warriors Bar for a quick discussion about renovations, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner sees that the bar will need more than just an added lounge, but probably a complete rebuild as it's been torn apart. Kyle sifts through the rubble to find both John and Guy battered, bruised, and beaten. Making sure that they're both alright, Kyle asked who did this. Was it Sonar? Major Disaster? Dark Side? Guy tells them that it wasn't any of them. It was Hal Jordan. Flashback to a couple hours ago where John and Guy are going over the aforementioned renovations. Guy is disappointed that John's plans for a new section of the bar doesn't involve ongoing fireworks or explosions, and John tells him that he's a good architect, but not that good. Looking at the glass encased memorial to Hal, Guy wonders if he should take the display down now that Hal is back and alive, and as if on cue, Hal shows up to the bar. Guy ushers Hal to the table for a drink and some discussion, but Hal seems a little out of sorts. In fact, John noticed that this Hal seems a lot older than the one that they met a little with Kyle a little while ago. Dropping all pretensions, Hal reveals that he's not the youthful Hal that followed Kyle into this time, but Parallax from a time before Zero Hour. Yelling that they trusted him, Guy leaps at Parallax only to get an emerald uppercut to the face. John tries to attack as well, but he get also gets handily taken down. But the duo aren't out as Guy morphs into his Boldarian form and begins a Fighty McFightin' sign, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, with a shamrock charlatan, while John channels his latent lantern energy left to him by Hal during the final night. The two put up a good fight, but in the end, Parallax bests the former lanterns and heads off into space to find Hal Jordan at the moon-based watchtower. 
Back over at Warriors, Kyle tells Guy to get John to a hospital as he streaks on after Parallax, all the while wondering what he wants with the time-displaced Hal. Meanwhile, on the Watchtower, John Jones catches Hal Jordan doing a little absent-minded stargazing. The Manhunter says that they are alone on the station and he is retiring to meditate, but that the monitoring systems will notify him of any problems that might require his heroic attention. Hal thanks John for the heads up, and John departs saying that he's glad to have him back. Out in space, Kyle manages to catch up to Parallax and shoulder block him into the surface of the moon. Parallax channels Dr. Soren and asks, Just who the hell are you? And Kyle explains, I'm James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? Wait, no, that doesn't happen, sorry. What does happen is Parallax proclaims that he can be anywhere in time, and he's here to make sure that Hal Jordan is returned to his proper timeline. Knowing that he can't match Parallax in the power arena, Cal uses various constructs to try and distract and disable him, but they're of little good as Parallax easily takes out the last Green Lantern. This would be the end of the story, except there is one more Green Lantern round, and that one is the young Hal Jordan rushes out to face his older, villainous self. Okay, so this is the penultimate issue of Emerald Knights. It's it's getting pretty uh, it's getting pretty impressive, especially with the return of Parallax, and we're finally going to see what's going to happen with Hal from this earlier area from this earlier era. Blah. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't know uh, if history is going to change. What's happening now that Hal's here? Uh, I think we're going to have to have. I mean, it's it's kind of a nail biter ending, uh, and it's 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 all built up to this, and Hal's going to have to face down his future self, and I don't know if this sort of uh, less mature Hal is going to be able to handle it or what's going to go on, but it's it's been a really good run so far. Uh, what do you think about this issue, Luke? I like this issue as uh, taken just as a single issue. I thought they did a real good job. Uh, Mars did of, of giving you enough information to be able to be caught up on the story, even though I, I haven't read all of the previous issues of uh, Emerald Knights, but I was able to pick up very quickly that it was a time displaced Hal Jordan and that, you know, uh, he's back in the present day and that, you know, I, it helps that I knew who Parallax was, obviously, from Zero Hour. But I really liked it. I thought it, it did a good job of balancing all the different Green Lanterns for a book called. Green Lantern, it, it featured several different ones, and they all come off very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Mars gave each of the Lanterns, even the former ones and Guy and John, a little bit to do in this. And you know, I'll get into later if you if you want to know. Obviously, obviously, you know about Guy. He's gotten the Voldarian powers. And at the end of Final Night, where Hal as Parallax came back to reignite the sun, he sort of gifted John with this emerald energy, which allowed him to walk because he had been injured and uh, basically had lost his ability to walk. So this is why you see John ringless being able to blast Hal with sort of green lantern energy. So, yeah. 
like I said, I, I thought this was, was really just a, a solidly put together issue. I thought it was interesting on the cover. You know, we've got Parallax standing uh, over Kyle, and he's he's uh, kind of crushing Kyle's ring hand in his in his right hand and looming over him with his cape bellowing. What's interesting is the choices from uh, I'm I'm guessing it was uh, Rob Schwager did the the colors on the uh, on the on the cover. Is if you look, you can see that you don't see any of the white at the temples of Parallax. So, yeah. See, that that cover suggests that this is the time displaced Hal. Who's gone evil? Mm-hmm, because the actual Hal Jordan that became Parallax still was the older Hal Jordan. He still did have the sort of white temples going on, which is, you know, which has been a bone of contention. I don't understand the the white temples and all that. Uh, many people have said that the white temples were put there because Hal was possessed by Parallax. I think that was an idea that Jeff Johns put forth. But yeah, that I just noticed that, and yeah. It could be a coloring error, but uh, that does kind of make you, from the cover, suspect that the time-displaced Hal Jordan is the one who's uh, threatening Kyle here. So, yeah, that's a good catch. And, and even beyond that, I mean, th- this was, uh, this was what, 98 that this was published? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 98. I mean, if I'm a DC reader in 1998, even if I'm not necessarily reading Green Lantern, if I see Parallax on a cover, I'm gonna it's gonna catch my interest. Mm-hmm. Because Zero Hour, yeah, you know, Zero Hour did it make a lot of sense? No, you know, even even uh, let me put it this way: I I read Zero Hour as a DC novice in 1994, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense. I read it last year or two years ago; it still didn't make a whole <laughs> lot. Of sense. Yeah, that's the unfortunate thing about uh, Zero Hour. It was it was this sort of misguided way of trying to fix some of the things that weren't quite fixed with the crisis. And it in some ways ended up making things even more difficult in the DC universe. I've all, I've often thought that zero hour. If, if, if you could see Dan Jurgen's notebook with all of his notes for zero hour, it probably makes a whole lot of sense and is really good. Cause I always got the feeling reading zero hour that, that Jurgen's knew what he was doing but it didn't always end up on the page. You know what I'm saying? That that it's it's like if if Dan, if you could sit down with Dan Jurgens, he could explain it to you. You'd be like, all right, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I I could see that because I think Dan Jurgens is an exceptional writer, and I think he could have scripted out something that would have made a lot more sense than what came out in Zero Hour. So yeah, I would I would probably have to agree with you. Uh, mm, I don't want to force the idea of editorial jiggering that that did anything to zero hour because we know uh dc editorial never never messes with their writers in any way shape or form you know it's it's it wouldn't be the comic book industry if editorial didn't step in to fix things that's true and 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 by fix you mean the other word that begins (laughs) with an f hey you know what it's everyone always you know uh, editorial comes in with with my brother was telling me about this documentary he watched about the Friday the 13th series, and he said that in one of the later directors, one of the later films, made a great point because you know nobody ever sets out to make a crappy movie, you know, no one ever sets out to make a crappy comic, <laughs> you know. So if, they, if they changed something, they thought it it looked good to them. It's like you know, it's why did the rough why did the Russians invade Afghanistan? You know, hey, relatively speaking, good move, but. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. That notwithstanding, the uh, but beyond that, like I said, if I see Parallax on a cover, I'm gonna that's gonna catch my interest just because, you know, he. I mean, you know, between Zero Hour and he was the the big bad in that, and then we just had Final Night not too long ago, and you know uh, that was you know that was Hal Jordan the Parallax going out and uh, going out a hero. You know, suddenly now he's back as Parallax. It's like, well, what's what's going on here? You know. That's mm-hmm. that's gonna grab your attention. Oh, definitely. Uh, moving into the book, you know, we've got the got the first page, and the artwork is divided up between Jeff Johnson and uh, Scott Eaton, and you can see a bit of distinction. I think the the first part here, I think the flashback part is done by Eaton and uh, Hudson, but the rest of the book is done by uh, Johnson and Wycheck. And I'm looking at this; it, it's a nice. Uh, first splash page but uh if you know anything about the warriors bar the warriors bar is constantly getting blown up or demolished or wrecked or someone coming through and uh you know just tearing the place up so kyle coming in and seeing it destroyed that could just be tuesday for the warriors bar basically (laughs) yeah i agree with that and and the thing that's odd i mean i i like the art here i I think it's um the thing I thought was that this was was very kind of kind of uh, not not super clean, but not super muddled either. There's mm-hmm. a nice level of of detail and and shadowing, but the, the just a bit of odd placement here on on page one. You know, Kyle's uh, flying down, and he's saying "Guy, John," and it looks like Arishia is saying. <laughs> it does kind of where the. Uh... Where, where the, the word balloon comes out, yeah. At first, I mean, I didn't, I didn't uh, see that that it was a, a mannequin of Aresia standing in a case. I thought Aresia was in here, and then I was like, "Well, where did Aresia go?" I'm like, "Oh, wait, she, that was not a mannequin, Luke. That's <laughs> not actually there." <laughs> well, you know, it, it wouldn't be surprising. You know, she, you know, as far as I know, she was well. No, at the end of uh, Guy Gardner Warrior, she was uh, murdered by Major Forrest, so she hasn't come back yet. Oh, spoilers. So, yeah, she does come back eventually. Um, Moving on to page three. I agree with you. Uh, Johnson uh, did a really good job. If you go back and check out uh, issue 101, Johnson did a really great job doing artwork in that issue. I think that's probably one of the best issues that came out in this little uh, arc of the Emerald Knights thing. The artwork was really good, but I don't think he's got the character of Guy down, especially his face. It looks just a bit off. And the shading uh, at the bottom of that bottom panel on page three is just a bit too dark on the character. So um, it's it's kind of disappointing, but, you know, it's not bad artwork per se. I mean, I've I've seen crappy artwork in the Greenlander books, and this is not it. It's just not as as good as it's been in prior books. Yeah, with Guy, it looks like guys let his hair grow out a little bit to try and look more respectable. Mm -hmm. And we all know Guy wouldn't do that. No, no. Is look to look more respectable. That's true. But I, I like the uh, I like the uh, the the musculature on guy here. I, like I said, I like the figure work. And uh, on panel two there on page three, we get the Kilowog uh, stand up in the back. And Kilowog, I think look Kilowog looks pretty classic there in this little bit we see of him. Mm-hmm. That, that generally, they said it. I like this art because it's 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 good on the uh, it, it conveys the story well. Though uh, yeah, the inking's a little heavy in spots for sure. But uh, no, like I said, I, I I like it. And yeah, my thought was like this was the art was so much different than the last time I was on the show. 
uh, doing a Green Lantern book, you know. Well, it's I think much more it's much more grounded, I think, at least for for this portion of it. I'm trying to think back back then. I'm not certain if it was Daryl Banks yet. I'm thinking it might have been Banks and uh, Tangal still doing it. So yeah, that is kind of a jump. I mean, Banks is very. I want to say very classic, uh, you know, like the George Perez type style, while uh, while Johnson seems to be a bit more cartoony and not cartoony in a bad way. But, you know, like I said, he kind of works well with Paul Pelletier, who has that sort of, you know, uh, not quite uh, Mike Parabek or Ty Templeton type look, but not definitely not the classic George Perez, uh, Jerry Ordway type look. Right. Yep. Um, uh, and then we move to the flashback scene and uh, again, we get, I guess this is Eaton drawing and Eaton draws him a bit more classically, draws the characters a bit more classically, but he also draws them really beefy. Yeah. I mean, both John and John and Guy have just suddenly bulked up a lot, especially John. If you look at him, he looks more like, you know, uh, a star quarterback. He looks, I mean, he looks, well, he looks buff. The way that John is drawn nowadays. Yes. You know, as a big, as a as a big tough guy, and not the way that John was, you know, traditionally rendered uh, back in this time. I think the beefy look works really good for Guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm I'm willing to chalk John up to the cut of his suit. You know, maybe he's got one of those. Like a Deion Sanders type of cut on his suit, a little bit. You know. Well, that could be it because uh, you know I'm moving on to the page where. You know, Hal's introduced himself, and you see John drinking that mug of beer, and he looks like—I mean, he just—he yeah. looks like he's a prize fighter. He oh, doesn't you, look like the sort of lean, you know, uh, sort of running back type character. You know, he got the broad shoulders. You know, you can see his chest is sticking out while he's drinking his beer there. Yeah, definitely, kind of a, a beefy look. Mm-hmm. I don't have any real notes until we get to the splash page where. Hal reveals that he's actually Parallax. Oh yeah, that's 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 just a great pinup. I love the the effects coloring around mm-hmm. it, the the uh, ring energy around his hands, and uh, the little bit of green smoke all over the place. A nice hidden signature there in the in the right above the page number. I thought was nice. Oh yeah, Looking, I didn't. But it uh, it'll just disappear into the detail if you're not. Yeah, that is. I I, I didn't notice that, and I couldn't tell if that was a. But now that you mention Eaton, yeah, it's it's a nice little sort of uh, hidden signature there. So that's kind of cool. But yeah, that's that's a significantly better um, hiding of the signature for a splash page than it was in Green Lantern 50 with the splash page of Parallax where Banks and Tangal just pretty much outright signed it right <laughs> on the page, which was... Uh, kind of embarrassing. But yeah, I like this. I agree with you. The uh, The energy, the sort of not quite Kirby crackle that's coming off his hands, but the bubbly green energy coming off is really nice. A good coloring job. And Parallax himself just looks really good. I mean, it's a very 90s sort of costume in a lot of ways with the shoulder pads and the unnecessarily involved boots. Mm-hmm. You know? But he, but he, it's, it's drawn really well and he really looks impressive. And I like the, the size here. I mean, with John laid out on the floor, and then guy on his knees in the foreground, kind of getting, you know, rising up on one foot and one knee. Parallax just looks really, really impressive and really threatening to these guys because they're not, they weren't expecting a fight, you know, and now they've got one whether they wanted it or not. Mm-hmm. 
looking on on uh, on the next couple of pages, I'm looking uh, again at Hal or at Parallax here, and throughout the book, he doesn't have or he doesn't seem to have the white streak through his hair. So I can understand why initially they may not have thought that he was, you know, the Hal Jordan Parallax. So I don't know whether that's a coloring issue or whether they're just kind of messing with the timeline because when Hal went and became Parallax in issue 50, he still had the gray stripe, but I don't know. And this is supposedly Hal before zero hour. So again, wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Great thing about zero. You can wave anything away for things that don't make sense because of a, a, a result of the temporal wonkiness of zero hour. I remember in the lead into zero hour before we got to the zero issues, Remember this during Superman. This is when the period of the uh, of the diamond numbers. Yes, and they had a misprint on one of the covers, and the diamond numbers for that month were out of order. And so, like the the books themselves were like I think it was like a thirty six or something that was repeated that month. And so they, you know, they they the diamond the diamond numbers didn't work. You know, they they you had to kind of use your head and figure out which one was actually next. Well, somebody wrote in and said, well, obviously the diamond numbers being messed up was a result of zero hour, right? <laughs> and the editor's like, yes, yes, it was. That's it. Exactly if, right. <laughs> if they didn't get a baldy for that, they should have. <laughs> that, that, is, that is very much worthy of a baldy, I would say. Yeah. Um, on page nine, where Guy morphs into his warrior form, I think Eaton does a great job. A lot yeah. of times it's it's difficult for people to get guy as warrior down and they make his sort of morphed weapons and everything a bit too elaborate. This is pretty simple. He's got sort of a kind of like a guitar in his right hand and his left hand is morphed into a sort of plasma gun. It's, it's not as elaborate as a lot of other uh, artists have done. It's relatively simple, but I think it looks pretty good here. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I really like the way guy looks, uh, when he when he's um, warriored out, so to speak, again much more, and I put this in air quotes, realistic than he looked in a lot of uh, Guy Gardner Warrior, mm-hmm. which was you know the design of that book was very kind of over the top and and kind of mega macho, whereas here that the beefiness really helps. First off, wearing the costume with just the the boots and jeans. And then you got the the, you know, the big beefy arms with the weapons on them. He really looks he looks good. You know that this is uh, I I would read a Guy Gardner book with uh, with Johnson doing the art, mm-hmm. um, Eaton doing the art uh, in this style because it, it really does look great. And then on on panel three when he changes both his arms to the pair of tridents, yes, looks really nice. I like the impact on uh, and and the the resulting scowl on Parallax's face when he gets swiped with the tridents there. So yeah, that, this really does look nice. I can even uh, I can even excuse that one of his arms is a space vacuum cleaner. <laughs> but, well, these space vacuum cleaners were rage. Yes, of course. Well, you know, and and Bo Smith has been has commented quite a bit that uh, a lot of times when artists drew Guy outside of his book, they would draw him with the most ridiculous outfits or the most ridiculous accoutrements to his body, you know, vacuum cleaners, kitchen sinks, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever you could do. But, you know, it could be worse. That's could, true. Um, there's, a, there's a Marvel character named Gideon Mace. Who's <laughs> OK. Hand, his hand has been replaced with, wait for it, a mace. 
And wow. Mace also sprays chemical mace. <laughs> Needless to say, he fought Luke Cage in the mid-70s. So. <laughs> I, I don't know how you knew that, Luke. I, I know it because I own the issue where he appears. <laughs> now I know it. <laughs> oh, man. What I always love is like that's just dedication right there. It's like your name is Mace. You're going to lose a hand, have it replaced with a mace, and have that mace spray mace. That's that's brilliant. I think that's... when I think his favorite spice may also be mace, so, and and his favorite '90s rapper also mace. Oh well. <laughs> How far could they take that? I'm certain they could take it a bit further. You never know. Um, I really don't have any notes. The fight sequence was really good. Uh, it was pretty short. I mean, Parallax pretty much owned both Guy and John. Granted, John only had the sort of latent lantern energy that he really couldn't tap into. But the fact that he took down Guy pretty handily is, well, it's disappointing for me because, you know, obviously I'm a Guy Gardner fan. But, yeah, he he pretty much owns both of them. Yeah, but, you know, Parallax is kind of out of Guy's weight class when you come right down to it, you know. I mean, Parallax took on the entire DCU in Zero Hour. You know, so I don't, I don't mind him, him putting, uh, going over, over uh, Guy, because, you know, Guy puts up a, a good fight. I really like on page 12 uh, when Guy finally says that, you know, that he'll tell him, and he says that the other Hal's on the moon. He says, well, so now you know, but you're going to have to go through me to get there. The, the look of determination on his face, and then the, the, the final panel, uh, panel four on that page, just the coloring all goes to yellow, with uh, guy charging up the energy in his uh, in his his morph uh, gun arms, and then the you know the the ex- the just the explosion of energy that's coming off of both of them. I think it really you know it puts guy over that he's not going to let Parallax get through him easily. He's going to mm-hmm. his defeat very dearly. Uh, you know that that to me helps guy put get put guy over. As as a as a as a powerhouse here against a threat that he really has no business tangling with. Mm-hmm. No, I'll, I'll I'll agree with you there. Yeah, that that panel at the bottom of page twelve is it, it really sells the sort of power, the sort of energy that's going through these two people. And yes, guy, I agree, is completely overclassed here, completely outclassed here. But the fact that he's willing to stand up to him, just again. Is the reason why I love Guy Gardner. Oh but yeah, it's like Guy ever backed down from a fight that's never stopped him being outclassed. You know, yeah. um, we move back to to Johnson and Wyacek, uh doing the art after the uh, flashback sequence, and it's a little jarring. the The definition on the faces, especially at that top panel on page fourteen, yeah. the faces of uh, John and Guy look a bit. A bit simplistic. It's not quite as detailed, but it's not bad. It's uh, it's simplest, but it's there, you know. Mm-hmm. And and you can also kind of take that in a thematic way, as you know, everybody's emotions are are, are running high. Everybody's adrenaline's running high during the fight, and now everybody's kind of come down from that, and everything is much more subdued in the quiet after the you know the the giant thoom explosion, or is it thoom? No, it's choom. Excuse yes. me. Because every time I always think Boom Thum and Buck Fifty, but ah, uh... <laughs> uh, Guy Gardner in the original <laughs> series, oh, those are so fun. Um, speaking of calm, it, uh, it leads us to this this really nice scene on uh, page fifteen at the Watchtower with just uh, 
John and Hal. And I really like I really like this. It's a it's a nice quiet scene with John going up telling Hal that you're a part of the team, that uh I'm I'm gonna do some meditation. The watchtower is yours, you're all alone, it'll alert you if anything is going on. And by the way, Hal, it's good to have you back. And it's it's a way of cementing that the Justice League of this time is for the most part, aside from one specific person, we all know who that is, is accepting of how being back. And it's great. It's a nice little scene between the two characters. Yeah, and and especially now that we're we're established in the Morrison era Justice League, you know, where this idea that the this very popular idea now that the Martian Manhunter was the heart and soul of the Justice League. That it really comes more from the Morrison League than anything else, because while the Martian Manhunter was a you know obviously there from the start, he you know he did never played that big of a role in a lot of the stories that we kind of retroactively assigned to him. He was uh, he was a lot of times he he would play Iron Man and be the guy that gets beaten up by the threat to put over how powerful they are, or he'd be the guy that was there to use the telepathy to keep everybody. Uh, in, in contact. And so here, where we've started to establish this idea that John was, he was always the rock that the Justice League was built on and that sort of stuff, that plays very well uh, in this scene, and it serves the characters well that this guy, the the guy who's the heart and soul of the Justice League, is welcoming the time-displaced Hal Jordan back, then obviously the League, like you say, the League is welcoming of this, this you know pre-corruption version of Hal Jordan. And I, I think it works really well, and, I, and it's the artwork is is really nice here because we see so little of John, with his cloak over his shoulders all the way down to his feet like that. It just looks very kind of classy look for the Martian Manhunter. Mm-hmm. Well, and it gives the sort of somber feel of him. John is John is one of these characters that I've always seen people underestimate, and it's because of his very sort of solemn, very reserved nature that people just don't tend to realize how amazing and how powerful a character is. And I think he carries himself in that way where he's not, you know, sort of flashy and overbearing as like, you know, say Superman is and not in a negative way. Superman is flashy and overbearing. is flashy because he's got a bright blue suit with red trunks and a big red cape. John is just very subdued, but he's, he's often overlooked for being an incredibly powerful person, uh, more uh, mostly on the level that Superman would be. So yeah, it, to see him, like you said, come up to Hal and say that we accept you, just sells it perfectly. Yeah, the the Manhunter again, especially dating after the Morrison League, was was very this very serious character most of the time, which is what made it great when he would have his little moments of of humor, a very wry humor. Uh, a, a bit that I always liked from this era was that. When Plastic Man joined the Justice League, the reason why he was there was because it amused the Martian Manhunter that Batman was totally annoyed by Plastic Man. <laughs> and so that's you know, it's like, he's, everybody knows that guy who's really serious, but every now and then will just have some really wry comment or sarcastic comment. Oh, yes. <laughs> And I, I like the way that Morrison kind of did that with the Martian Manhunter, that he gave him a little bit of that sort of, did he just say that sort of uh, sense of humor that people would get from him? So, yeah, that's that's awesome. Hopefully Diablo Frank will be you know enthused by that. 
He's not listening. No, he's not listening. Um, page sixteen. This gets into some of the this gets into some of the writing here, where Ron Mars is starting to question what the heck's going on. Uh, if Hal's here and he knows of his future, can he become Parallax? And if so, why is Parallax here? And if Parallax is here. How, did he not die saving the sun during final night? So they're trying to address all the sort of temporal wonkiness that's going on. And it's also uh, another thing that if Hal's here, why is Kyle here? Because Kyle, the only reason Kyle's here is because Hal went crazy and became parallax. So Kyle's trying to work all this stuff out in his mind. And it's a good, it's a good page here where we get some description by Ron Mars of him trying to think how all of this is going on. Yeah, I think it's it's very good having Kyle try to work his way through it logically because we, the reader, are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so to have Kyle basically you know, help us walk through it and all the permutations of, well, if this is the case, then how can this be? It, it makes the time travel a little bit easier to swallow. Mm-hmm. I like in stories with time travel where there's someone who says, that doesn't make any sense because I'm, that's how I usually feel in mm-hmm. the time stories you know uh what what's funny is that not too long before this story there was a marvel story that did something in uh, similar in some in some ways where after he went was corrupted by kang and went crazy uh they the avengers replaced iron man with the teen version of tony stark before he went corrupt and and that didn't work out too well because that lasted for about six months before the heroes were born uh uh, stunt with the image creators, but it was it was kind of the same thing. It's like, well, if Teen Tony is here, then how can you know older Tony still have been corrupted? Why would he not? You know, it's just, it you need if you need a flowchart to figure it out, it's too complex. Mm-hmm. So here, I liked I liked a lot that Mars addresses that head on. He, he he takes it right on the nose and says, well, yeah, it's confusing. Here's a character who we've been following that usually can figure stuff out, and he's confused by it. Yeah, that's, you know, it, it, it's good. I agree. It's good that they're addressing it because otherwise it, it does weigh kind of heavily on your mind that they're not addressing it. And if they didn't address it, that would even, I think that would make the, the story a bit more problematic to follow. Oh, yeah. Um, my next note is on page 20. And well, I think, I think me, you'll, I, I know what you're going to say, but let me just say this real quick. Kyle and Hal and Parallax fighting on the moon, all I can think of is Superman 4. <laughs> because they're walking on the moon also, just like in Superman 4. Yeah, that's that's true. I, mean, I Kyle, was thinking more of the homage... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Kyle's got the, the uh, force field around him, but Parallax doesn't. So I'm not sure how that works exactly. <laughs> um, Wizards? Yeah, I don't with, know. <laughs> the other thing I do want to say is that the one of the last times I was on was another time that Hal came back, oddly enough. And uh, <laughs> uh, when him and Kyle were fighting, the colorist on that book did a good job of making their constructs different colors. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, the it's it's a little less subtle because the con the constructs seem to be the same shade of green for the most part. And and I I I don't know I I think that's a kind of a missed opportunity because I always liked I like that on uh, earlier Green Lantern stories I've read where. If they're if you've got two lantern two green lanterns fighting each other, their constructs will be just slightly different colors. Mm-hmm. Just keep straight who's doing what, you know. 
or if or if it, if it were the case, and I recently covered these in uh, uh, the Green Lantern Sentinel Heart of Darkness book, you would find that uh, Green Lantern or Sentinel Alan Scott's constructs would have more of a fiery outline to them, while uh, the regular Green Lanterns would be very simplistic, just simple lines. So what I was going to comment on, and I'm not certain if this is just supposed to be kind of a rip on it, but it does look like Kyle rings up a bit of a Godzilla Godzilla analog here on page twenty. That's Godzilla right there. I mean, I mean, look, he's got he's got three rows of spines on his back. Mm-hmm. He's got uh, he's got three toes. He's got four claws, and he's breathing fire. It's like that is Godzilla clearly, mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense because Kyle Rayner already shown to be an anime fan, a manga fan. Of course, he's probably seen more than his fair share of Godzilla movies on uh, cable, uh, you know, and, and I don't, I don't know what Kitla, maybe KTLA or something out West uh, that he knows, he, he knows uh, that sometimes it just takes, you know, you know, properly applied giant monsters. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with putting some giant monsters in the book. That's always good. Yeah. But, um, and I, I think it's ironic though. The one issue I come in for has Godzilla in it. Well, I, I wish I could have had you on for uh, where? When was it? We were covering faster. I was covering Faster Friends with uh, uh, Dave Walker, and Kyle actually did a construct where he created Gamera. It was an obvious ring construct, Gamera, which he used to shield him and Wally from some falling debris from a building. I remember it, you talking about that one? Yeah. Yeah. It also dealt with hair metal sonar, so yeah, that would have been fun as well. Yeah. Um, the last the last note I have really is on the final splash page with Hal just barreling in to take out Parallax. And yeah, if this doesn't if this last page doesn't get you excited for the next issue, I don't know what would the, the very interesting the pose on young Hal Jordan there. That is a very traditional Silver Age Gil Kane style Green Lantern pose there. You know, flying with the with the arms in the, the the like a W sort of position, with the one leg a back a by um behind his back and the other one in front of him. I mean, you can pick up a you know a copy of Showcase Presents Green Lantern and flip through and see that exact pose. So I thought that was a nice touch. That again, we've got this sort of you know year two era uh, Hal Jordan, and he's acting like the year two era Hal Jordan. You know. Yeah. I, th- I think you can see that in a lot of the art throughout this uh, throughout this uh, series of books that Hal Jordan does have a style and uh, artistic feel of the classic showcase era Hal Jordan or the classic you know uh, original Gil Kane and John Broom uh, scripted and pen uh, books back then. So it's it's really nice. In fact, in certain issues, they even captured Hal Jordan, and it may just be because of the look of his costume. But I think in some issues they captured Hal Jordan looking a lot the way Darwin Cook would eventually come to draw him in the New Frontier books, which I thought was kind of neat. And I'm not certain if you know Cook swiped it from them, but I'm certain it's a callback to the traditional, you know, artwork that they had back then. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 glorious. It's a really good splash page, and it really gets you wondering how this is all going to turn out. So, I I love the heck out of it. Oh yeah. But the you know the original uh, Silver Age Green Lantern costume is so in in one sense very simplistic, you know it's it's just green and black and white with the logo. 
So, you know, it, it didn't have some of the ostentatious aspects that would be added to the future Green Lantern styles, even ones that Hal would wear, you know, where it got a little bit more spruced up. Whereas here, that this one, this always makes me think of the Superpowers Green Lantern toy. Mm-hmm. And it that, that's such a classic, clean look that it always looks sharp. And uh, and it looks it certainly looks sharp here in the little bit we get to see of young Hal in action. So I don't know. I'm I'm I, I've never been a you know one of these guys that oh I can't stand Hal Jordan. You know I I like all the 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 four major Green Lanterns. I always have. So Hal Jordan versus Parallax, like yeah, I'm buying that issue clearly. <laughs> oh yeah, but uh, we'll be getting to to the final issue of that next week. But the one thing that I've been looking I've been forward to, to is. The next issue that we're going to be doing, Iron Lantern. This is going to be some fun. So after we take this quick uh, podcast commercial break, we're going to come right back with Iron Lantern number one of one. (laughs) The Bronze Age of Comics, an era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limson.com And ladies and gentlemen, we are back. This time, we're going to take a look at kind of uh, eclectic issue here we're going to take a look at iron lantern and mr luke giaconetti you have the floor sir all right thank you iron lantern number one was cover dated june 1997 
released on or about April 2nd, 1997. These dates, of course, come courtesy of Mike's Amazing World at DCIndexes.com. The writer of our story was crafty Kirk Busiek. The artist was peerless Paul Smith. The inkers, and there's a lot of them, was Al Williamson, Andrew Peepoy, Greg Adams, Bob McLeod, Tom Palmer, and Alan Milgram. Richard Starkings was the letterer, Christy Scheel, colorist. Tom Brevoort was the editor. Editor-in-chief was Bob Harris. And our issue is entitled Showdown at Stark Aircraft. In orbit of Oa, the living planet, Hal Stark, the Iron Lantern, has his prisoner, the super-smart, super-criminal Hector, in tow for imprisonment. Once his charge has been taken into custody, Iron Lantern heads to the planet's central battery and recharges his armor in its emerald light. Back on Earth, at the Coast City headquarters of Stark Aircraft, a demonstration of the new S-41 fighter jet is being delayed by Stark's absence. Designer John Rhodes, mechanic Happy Kalmaku, and test pilot Pepper Ferris debate what to do. But with the delegation from D.C. waiting, Pepper decides that she shall fly the jet, leaving John and Happy to worry about their boss, whom they know is secretly Iron Lantern. Back in space, Hal thinks back to how he became the Iron Lantern, how he crash-landed near a downed alien vessel, mortally wounding himself in the process, and using the technology inside to build a suit of armor to keep himself alive, and unwittingly becoming an agent of Oa the Living Planet. But our hero was roused from his revelry as he enters Earth's atmosphere and is immediately greeted by the sight of the S-41 losing control with Pepper in the cockpit. I.L. helps the jet make a safe landing, but knows that this will not impress the brass from Washington. At a reception that night, Hal is chewed out by a senator who demands to know why he let a woman handle the testimony. This enrages Pepper who storms out leading Hal to comment that there is little doubt that she and the Senator are father and daughter. Senator Ferris sends his aide, Kyle O'Brien, out to retrieve her, but O'Brien has other things on his mind, like how he can find Iron Lantern's power battery and once more become the powerful Green Guardsman. Pepper, in her dismay, has run out into the forest, but she soon finds her evening taking an even more bizarre turn as a strange floating gem appears before her transforms her once more into the sinister Madame Sapphire. She wastes little time in lashing out against the assemblage at Stark Aircraft, using her powers to resurrect the massive machine known as Great White. With the situation critical, Hal flees from the party and dons his emerald chestplate, changing into Iron Lantern. He zooms outside to stop the machine, but finds he also has to deal with Madame Sapphire, whose love-hate psycho would-be girlfriend routine leads her to attack him as well. I.L. feigns defeat, but then uses the opportunity to construct a giant rocket backpack, sending Great White into space. He pursues the giant robot, and uses his armor to create a giant construct version of itself to battle. Back on Earth, Madam Sapphire takes advantage of the break in the action to hunt down Senator Ferris, encase his guards in purple crystals, and kidnap him. Down in the bowels of the building, John and Happy check on I.L.'s battery, but are ambushed by Kyle. They put up a good fight, but Kyle overcomes them and claims the power battery as his own. Out in space, Hal finds his power cut off, losing the construct armor and leaving him totally vulnerable against Great White. Thinking fast, I.L. dives down Great White's mouth and blows the robot up from the inside, but the move drains the last of his power reserves, and our hero begins falling to Earth. With the power battery stolen, 
and Senator Ferris a captive, things look pretty bad. But they take a turn for the worse when the mastermind behind all of Hal's recent problem problems reveals himself as the ten-ring-wielding alien Mandarin Estro. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> oh my lord! This was like a barrel of fun. Oh my god, this was fantastic. This, this music. you know, as, as obvious as the title states, this is an amalgamation of both Iron Man and Green Lantern. And yes, you can feel... The book is very much a Marvel written book, but it incorporates some of the some of the most fun ways ever. The the one thing that I can say about this book, the if if I could use one word to define it, fun would be it. This is just glorious, glorious read. Oh yeah, there there's everything about this is is fantastic. I mean every every aspect rings true. This is such a I mean, you're right. This is very much a Marvel-style Silver Age book, but there are some aspects in here there that are really subtle that really scream the DC Silver Age as well. And Busiek does a great job of combining these two, uh, these two often dissimilar styles into one book that works amazingly well and is just a, a barrel of fun for 22 pages. Mm -hmm. Um, starting out with the cover. Now, uh, the the actual title piece is a nice uh, mashup of the two the two titles with the uh, riveted look for the iron and then the sort of uh, classic Green Lantern style for the word lantern. But it, it's a typical Marvel uh, Marvel type uh, image with the uh, floaty heads, you know, encircling the character in the middle with him and just this sort of very almost Christ-like pose. It's awesome. Yeah, just and awesome. I like that the, the rivets on iron are our gems but that was a nice touch and then of course the the o is made with the green lantern symbol as the o which was also kind of a, a nice a nice combination i do like that because um this is 1997 we still have the approved by the comics code authority stamp on the cover as well <laughs> i would have made it bigger i would have made it uh, you know the full size like it was in the 60s personally uh, but but yeah with the floaty heads and the 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 central the lantern power battery hooked up to all the power cables. That this is definitely, I think, the type of cover that Marvel would have done in the late '60s. Uh, Iron Man got his own title, spinning out of Tales of Suspense, in 1968. And this I could see if you got like Don Hack or Gene Colan to draw this, this would look very much like it could have come from 1968. Oh yeah. Well, and they've gotten some classic inkers working on it. They've got Tom Palmer and Al Milgram and Bob McLeod working on them. So they've got some uh, pretty classic inkers helping with it. But there is no real – I couldn't really tell a distinction between them. There, it all looked – unlike the previous issue in Green Lantern 105, there was really no difference between the artwork. And the inkers' styles didn't uh, – clash with each other with each other yeah you, you can see some minor differences in the way that the the shading is done with the cross hatching but nothing that takes away from smith's pencils so mm -hmm. it really looks very like you said very consistent throughout it really looks really looks sharp um page one oa the living planet 
brilliant. <laughs> oh yeah, and I love the the big blue face on <laughs> the Living Planet as well. And it's I don't know whether they're actually trying to draw a sort of Julius Schwartz because I know Schwartz was essentially the uh, basically the image that they would use for the Guardians or for the most mostly for the face of the Guardians. And I don't know if Ego had a face because I haven't encountered Ego. I've heard a lot of stories like uh, in uh, classic Thor that uh, oh Tom Harris has been doing on Radio Free Asgard. He just finished up a story uh, of Galactus fighting with Ego. So I don't know if Ego actually has a face or if Ego is more like a Mogo type character. Ego has a face. Actually, Ego also has a beard, which is a little odd. <laughs> but uh, he doesn't. His face, I never really saw. Like a, because it's made of like rock, so he never had really features like a like a person would. So th- this is kind of a nice amalgamation of the the guardians and ego, the living planet, because it it is a planet with a face on it, like ego, but it's the guardians, you know, smiling visage looking down on mm-hmm. Iron Lantern and his prisoner Hector. Oh, I love that. Hector stands for highly evolved creature, totally oriented on revenge. <laughs> brilliant uh, it's a it's a brilliant mashup of hector hammond and modok yes. you know two two villains from uh, both the character series it's it's just uh, picking out all the little mashups they have in here is just so much fun but it's even it's two characters that are uh that have large heads and have psychic powers also exactly i and i like uh on page one, I really like the word balloons that Iron Lantern uses. This general shape of the word balloons, well, right around this time, Kurt Busiek was still writing the very highly regarded Heroes Return volume of Iron Man. Actually, that volume won a series of the year in Wizard Magazine, I think, in 1997. So this was the same style of word balloon that Iron Man used in that book, except now, clearly, it's colored green, for it being the Iron Lantern using the emerald energy of Oa the Living Planet. So I think that was that was a nice touch for me going back to the uh, the Iron Man books from this time. But I love his line where he says, Iron Lantern is nobody's servant. Because, you know, Iron Man used to say that all the time to S.H.I.E.L.D. or the U.S. government or anyone who said that they had that he had to work for them. And Hal Jordan would say the same thing to the Guardians, too. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the big thing about how he would always get in trouble with the Guardians by, you know, saying, look, I'm not I'm not your lapdog. I'm not doing this for you. And that got him in trouble a lot of times. So I like I think it's a very clever way that they're mashing the characters up. It's it's great. That was on panel two. Again, we mentioned this on the on the Green Lantern issue. That's a kind of a classic Green Lantern pose and Iron Man pose. Mm hmm flying with the legs kind of dangling behind to the horizon, especially with the big cuffs around his uh, wrists and ankles. That's a uh, George Tuska always did a good job of, of drawing those in similar poses in Iron Man. And it really, it, it looks, it look, I mean, again, you could, you could replace this with Green Lantern or Iron Man. It would still work. Oh, and yeah. then the very, very Marvel uh, credits. Although there, there's so many anchors, they couldn't give everybody a nickname. I noticed that. <laughs> On page two, yeah, I said I loved Hector. That was that was a brilliant and uh, the idea that uh, they uh, imprison Hector in sort of a science cell on uh, Ego or not Ego on Oa, the Living Planet, is is an is another nice mashup because they also used to have science yeah. cells on Oa where they would incarcerate them and also 
uh, and I don't know about uh, Ego, but I know with Mogo, he could pull people into his crust, and this is used sort of in the uh, recent Green Lantern issues, that he could pull them into their crust and sort of heal them. So the fact that they're using Oa the Living Planet as a sort of cell that morphs the villains into him is kind of nice. I enjoyed that part as well. Yeah, I like the also in panel two the uh, the footnote because he talks about that uh, had he not uh, you know have had Highlander had not stopped Hector he and the Weaponers of Aim would be ruling Earth right now. <laughs> of course, the of the Weaponers of Quard and Aim, and the footnote says as seen in the Iron Lantern Mariner special. Now, and the uh, the Mariner or excuse me the Aqua Mariner <laughs> excuse me the Aqua Mariner was the amalgam combination of the Submariner and Aquaman. Mm-hmm. And when when uh, Iron when Iron Man and the Submariner were moving from uh, Tales of Suspense and Tales to Astonish respectively to their own books, they teamed up in the Iron Man Submariner special for one month before they moved into their own books. <laughs> oh man! Well, see, this is this is a credit to Kurt Breisiak that he's taking all these references. And, and and putting them in this book and, and, and pulling from all these sort of Silver Age things. So, you know, a lesser writer, I think, could have easily just sort of glossed over this, but they put a lot of work. You can tell that they put a lot of work into trying to make this continuity seem real, and they do a great job with it. Yeah, just like in panel five, Iron Lantern refers to the human lantern of World War II. Mm-hmm. The combination of the Golden Age Human Torch and the Golden Age Green Lantern. Now, what was amazed, what was really amusing to me, is that there was another story in the uh, the Wave Two of the Amalgam books called Super Soldier Man of War, and Super Soldier was the amalgam of Captain America and Superman. And uh, Man of War was a book that was like the Invaders or the Justice Society or the uh, uh, the All Star Squadron that was set in World War Two, and featured the Human Lantern. Oh my! <laughs> Actually, it flesh that connection out in another story. <laughs> That's so brilliant. It, it, it saddens me that nowadays that something like this would probably never happen. You know, simply because of the kind of animosity that's built up between the two companies. But this is just such a fun read. You know, yeah. everything about it, and that they're taking so much time to encompass. Uh, you know, the history of both of these companies and put it in this book and do such a great job with it. Um, moving on to the next page, we get uh, Pepper, obviously John Stewart slash uh, uh, Rhodes. James Rhodes. Yeah. James Rhodes, yeah. And Tom Kalamaku slash uh, Happy, Hogan. Happy Hogan. Exactly. And it's... <laughs> The characters work out perfectly, and there's bits and pieces of each of them. You know, you find out eventually in the book that that Happy is not only a mechanic, but he's also a professional boxer, or at least was a professional boxer. And it's just well, what fun. I liked about that is not only was Happy a boxer, but he was also in the service, like Tom Kalmaku was. Mm-hmm. So it's again, you know, it's a combination. It really works as a combination of of the two, you know, the 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 best friend sort of characters from the old school Silver Age. Now, the one thing I would ask is, you know, I never saw Pepper as the, you know, we obviously had uh, Carol Ferris as the fighter pilot and owner of uh, Ferris, Air, or co-owner, eventual owner of Star, uh, not Stark Aircraft, of Ferris Aircraft in the DC Universe. Was Pepper in any way, did she have any relationship to a fighter pilot or any of that thing going on? No, the, the closest for that, I think, would be that she has 
you know, Carol had had this has a stereotype of having a personality of like the ice queen. Mm-hmm. Pepper was hot tempered. She was the spitfire. So I think that it's it's more kind of the modern interpretation of Pepper uh, than it was the Silver Age inversion of Pepper. But they they match up nicely because Carol would been, you know, Carol would have been done the same thing in this situation. She would have said, "Well, I'm going to take I'm going to take care of this," you know. And Pepper would have been just as mad at Tony for being late. So like, I think it, it works out. The, the the one I thought was really amusing was combining John Stewart and James Rhodes. Because two, first of all, two African-American men, two guys who are very, who were introduced later on to the mythos, both introduced in the 1970s, and both became very close to the hero, uh, the you know, the, the main hero, so to speak. And, and then both became that hero exactly and, yes. it, and they, they fit in so nicely as a you know because uh james rhodes was a pilot and uh and john stewart was an architect well now they've been combined into an aeronautics engineer it's like oh that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. <laughs> again the the amount of thought and cleverness that they put in this book is just amazing uh, you know this this could have easily just been oh we take these characters and mash them up but they've actually put a lot of thought and effort into it so I'm I'm really charmed by this oh. um a nice a nice version of the Hal Jordan and Tony Stark gaining their powers thing uh, of course you know it's the idea that Hal was drawn by the lantern and that Tony crashed and had something go into his heart that required him to build the armor to keep the uh, piece of metal from going into his heart. It's a nice amalgamation here again. And I love the image of the original sort of Mark one iron lantern here. That's just beautiful. Uh, What's interesting about this origin is that when you get right down to it, the, from the, the broad strokes of it are all silver age green lantern. You know, even the, the name of the alien is Roman sir. And that's a combination of obviously Abin sir and Roman Day, who is the head of the Nova Corps, and if you look in panel four, we see the we see uh, Roman Sir's helmet, and you can see it's a gold helmet with the red arrow on the front, like a Nova Corps helmet. I did not. I was going to ask you who Roman was, and and that now that I see that, yeah, that is a Nova Corps helmet there, and and I've been told, you know, I'm not that familiar with the Nova Corps, but I've heard that Nova is essentially the Marvel Universe analog yes. in some ways to Green Lantern. In a lot of ways. They, they especially when they had a whole Nova Corps at one point. They even called it a core. Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, at first I was reading, I was like, Roman, it didn't, it didn't dawn on me because I thought it would have been something like Yinsen Sor or something. Yeah, that, that him being the, uh, the uh, Vietnamese person who helped, uh, was, it Vietnam, was it Vietnamese or was it Korean? I don't know whether they moved it up at the timing the sliding time scale. At this point, uh, he's I, he, at this point the way when Warren Ellis redid the origin, it took place in Afghanistan. Okay. Like it does in the movie, and it's not clear what uh, Ho Yinsen's uh, ethnicity is. But you, using Roman Day, first off, very timely because Roman Day is going to be appearing in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie mm-hmm. later this, played by John C. Riley of all people. <laughs> Oh dear Lord, that's going to be completely bizarre. Invisible fire burn, my friend. Uh, <laughs> but then, but again, yeah, the, the Nova Corps, Green Lantern Corps connection was was really very novel, and I, and I like that they they did a lot of it with Green Lantern because the, the Green Lantern's origin 
is is so kind of uh, iconic. And at this point, before the Iron Man movie, I bet you you know ask any any folk uh, you know non comic reader on the street, they couldn't tell you Iron Man's origin, but they probably might be able to remember Green Lantern's origin. You know, so I, I like that they did that. And yes, that Mark One Iron Lantern that is fantastic. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's it's beautiful. It's the classic. It's it's from the classic tales of suspense the style. It just looks brilliant. And I, I I remember the reading that I had uh, my first one of my first comics was the uh, Origins of Marvel Comics and Son of Origins of Marvel Comics. And I read the heck of the out of that origin of Iron Man story with the who is he as he's putting the chest plate on and putting the helmet on. And then you see this this awesome Kirby image of Iron Man standing there in that silver armor is just wonderful. And they capture it really well here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything on the next page where he, you know, where he rescues the jet. Now, the only thing I I do like the sound effect of whomp when he makes the big uh, pillow. Mm -hmm. So I like the, the sound effects in this book are universally fantastic. (laughs) Oh yes. And, and again, we've got the, you know, the sort of, I didn't notice this. The uh, when Iron Lantern is speaking, you mentioned the sort of uh, the way that they color it. If you take a look at it, the shape of the actual word balloons looks kind of like a lantern. If you take a look at it, I didn't really uh, uh, take that into account. Notice that either. You're absolutely right. So yeah, that's that's kind of neat there. Um, the next page. This is this is very Howard Hughes. I like the way that, and I'm certain. Uh, Tony Stark for this point in time was pretty much an analog to Howard Hughes that they took a lot of swipes from the idea of Howard Hughes to work in the character of Tony Stark. Am I kind of right in that aspect? Yes, very much so. And and that actually what was funny is later on, later writers would have Tony develop almost an adulation for for, uh, Howard Hughes. But yes, very much a lot of the aspects of, of Howard, of, of Tony early in the Silver Age came from Howard Hughes. So yeah, this is definitely a huge look with the white tuxedo and the the, the pencil fin Errol Flynn style mustache. Mm-hmm. I like even the hair is kind of a, a mix of of Hal's hair and Tony's hair. It was Tony usually didn't brush his hair back like that, but he wore the mustache and Hal didn't wear the mustache. So that that's a good combination. Mm-hmm. And I, I've got to say, Paul Smith he draws he draws a really nice looking Pepper here. Uh, it's it's. Very a lot. I I want to say it's very simple, and uh, I want to say it's almost. Uh, I want to go back to the sort of Parabek type artwork. Uh, when Parabek did uh, the little uh, four issue series of Elongated Man, he draw he drew Sue Dibney uh, to look a lot like this. It just gave her a really classic sort of sex pot look. And uh, Paul Smith does a great job here drawing her. She's really good looking. Well, I also really love the work he did on her facial expressions. Mm-hmm. On uh, page six, the third panel, when uh, Tony or Hal comes up behind her, and she's just got that shocked look on her face. You can only see her one eye because she's got the uh, the Sue Storm hair in front of her other eye there, and she's got the one eye. And then in the next page, she, you can see she's uh, she's a, a little taken aback, but happy at the same time. You know, with with talk with Hal coming up to see her. After she's just been yelling at Happy, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I love. That is totally Happy and Pepper 
from the you know the the Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, Don Heck era Iron Man of of them to, of you know Happy trying to do something nice and Pepper just yelling at him, just tearing him apart. But then the the senator comes up and you know then she's face palming, mm-hmm. you know? And then even onto the next page when uh, the senator says assigning an important Tesla like that to a woman, then she's got the both eyes just gaping open. Mm-hmm. Small it's problem. it's it, it is it is really wonderful artwork. They they're really capturing her expression beautifully, and you know uh, we finally we come to the point where we realize that these Ferrises this this is father and daughter here, and it works well because obviously father and daughter Ferris and the and the Green Lantern book it it worked great. Now the next question I'm going to have is obviously O'Brien Kyle O'Brien is a mashup of Kyle Rayner and who? Kevin O'Brien, who was the original guard, the original guardsman. Okay. The guardsman armor that you might uh, remember being used by the U S government in the vault. Okay. The, that was uh, the guardsman was a Kevin O'Brien was a Stark. Uh, back then it was Stark industries employee who learned Tony's secret identity and, and, uh, eventually worked for at the time the board of directors at Stark was opposed to what Stark was doing because he was getting the company out of weapons manufacturing and all the all this stuff that we think of happening only in the 70s actually was happening very much in the early late 60s early 70s when uh, Archie Goodwin was writing the book and uh, he became the they developed another suit called the the guardsman armor that he wore and the the story that that most people remember Kevin O'Brien from is when there's student protesters at Stark Industries and he fires into the crowd. Okay, yes, I remember that storyline, yeah. And, and then there's a big fight between Tony and, and uh, Kevin, and Tony ends up, uh, Kevin ends up dying during the fight. And that's one of the, uh, you know, that haunts Tony for a long time after that. But this, I wanted to ask you about, first off, I need to say, Kyle O'Brien looks like George McFly with the white sport coat. <laughs> See, and also I thought, you know, I don't know whether his character being, you know, when I when I first saw him with the red hair and the sort of very square jaw, I I immediately went to a Guy Gardner mashup. But yeah. obviously this isn't supposed to be Guy Gardner. We'll see sort of a a Guy Gardner analog later in the book. Well, Kevin O'Brien had the red hair cuz he spoke with this terrible Irish accent. Oh lord. So did his brother who also became who became the second guardsman. But uh well, I, I wanted to ask you about this because the character here of Kyle O'Brien, I guess a combination of Kevin O'Brien and, and Kyle Rayner, and he's an antagonist in this story. Now, Ky- Kevin O'Brien did some, you know, he was an ally for a long time, but did in the end become an antagonist to Iron Man. The guardsmen and Iron Man had to, had to fight. Now, Kyle is not an antagonist character. And as, you know, as, as a big supporter of Kyle, that was that was a little. I mean, it makes sense because he was the re, quote unquote replacement, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of odd to make Kyle Rayner a character who's, as far as I know, never really had a brush with being a bad guy. In a role where he's an antagonist character for uh, the Hal Jordan analog. I think it may just be the fact that in in this universe he was sort of the replacement or eventually came in to be the uh, Iron Lantern, but he was doing that as the Green Guardsman. So since Kyle was the replacement for Hal Jordan in the DC universe, they kind of amalgamated in here. But yeah, I agree with you. That was the one thing that did kind of not set well with me, the fact that 
the Kyle analog in this universe was now considered to be a bad guy. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm certain there's plenty of members of Heat that would believe that Kyle was the bad guy, but they can go suck it. <laughs> no, I, I never bought Kyle as a bad guy. I always, ironically, the, the person who I think Kyle matches up best with in a lot of ways is James Rhodes. Because the, to me, there's, there's only ever been two guys who are Iron Man. That's Tony and, and Rhodey. You know, and and there've been other other men that have worn the Iron Man armor for short amounts of time. Um, Happy Hogan wore it for a short amount of time, not too long uh, after uh, where this would have taken place in in the Marvel universe. But whereas you know Kyle was every every bit Green Lantern that Hal was too. He wasn't. He was the replacement for Hal, but Hal was the one that went turned into a villainous antagonist character, not Kyle. You know. So it, it works for the story because, again, they're the two replacement characters, and it's a good mashup and a way to get Kyle, a Kyle Rayner character in there. But it, it still struck me as, as a little uh, unusual, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, he, he's not considered a villain character, at least Kyle isn't. So sometimes I think this would be the only point in the story where I think the amalgamation of the two characters doesn't quite work, but it's not so egregious that you, it, it ruins the story in any way. It's just a kind of, well, you know, Kyle really wasn't a villain. So, and for all we know, Hal could build, you know, uh, Kyle O'Brien, his own green guardsman suit, and he'd become a hero in a couple issues too. You never know. True. Yeah. Uh, the next page we get, uh, Pepper encountering the, "Quote unquote, Madam Sapphire gem." Oh yes, which is brilliant—a a mashup of Madam Mask and Star Sapphire. And again, it, it it works. It's two villains from the the different characters' universes and combined into one that I think I think perfectly fits. Well, yeah, both of them had the kind of sexual tension. I mean, Madam, I mean Whitney Frost and Tony Stark were an item, and so obviously were Carol Ferris and Hal Jordan. But Carol, now maybe. Maybe you can help me out. Carol, she didn't remember being Star Sapphire, did she? No, essentially when she was initially it, it was kind of like she was possessed. So she didn't know that she was Star Sapphire, but Hal did. And, you know, he would try and you know, bring her out of it. And, you know, it, it, it was kind of, you know, it, it wasn't really an exorcist type thing, but he would try to, to get the gem away from her so she would come back and be carol it was eventually later on when jeff johns took over and all that that they gave her more of a purposeful reason for being star sapphire when they expanded it to being the seven different types of cores so yeah. uh, Mad- madam mask when tony and whitney were together whitney was always the daughter of count nefaria and she was always involved with the magia and she was a criminal so their relationship a lot of times revolved around her trying to go straight and, you know, and the two of them trying to be there for each other while, you know, Tony had all of his problems being an Avenger and a, you know, a CEO of a major company and her with all her ties to her criminal background. And it never worked, you know, the she always would end up falling back into being the head of the Magia or, you know, working for her dad or, or whichever. And actually, there was a bit of a love triangle with with the two of them and Casper uh, Sitwell, agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., who uh, has shown who was in Thor actually he was the guy in the uh in at the containment unit in in the Thor film mm-hmm. and Cam- actually actually he's uh, appeared recently uh, he appeared in one of the agents of shield show so yeah and it was actually i believe the same actor who portrayed him so yeah he got tased by simmons if i'm remembering correctly mm-hmm. yep. panel 4 on this page 
really nice shot of uh, Madame Sapphire's tush. Mm-hmm. But I have to ask, would that is that's a little bit risque, I think, for a Silver Age book to put a shot that much of her tush. Uh, we'll just uh, chalk it up to uh, the little itty-bitty comics code thing there, so maybe they were able to get uh, away with a bit more uh, butt shot. I do like the costume is a very, besides being, now, now Madame Mask has a very simplistic costume. She wore just you know, a white cat suit with her golden mask. And Star Sapphire wore kind of like the, uh, the, the purple, like, one piece. Yes. So this is a nice combination of two very simple costumes that really works. I like that her mat, that her, she has sort of the mask with the way that her widow's peak comes down to form the V of uh, Madame Mask's mask. But it still looks a lot like a very traditional 1960s-style female costume. This is looks a lot like the Scarlet Witch's costume, where it was a one-piece with the leggings, whereas here it's actually her skin is turning purple, so it looks like leggings. Mm-hmm. So I, I like this. I looked, I think she looks great, and I love her word balloons, again, being the gem, the crystalline style. Yes, yeah. That, that... Very nice touch. Um, the next note I really have is... Uh... I skipped over the page where uh, Kyle is uh, wiring the uh, wiring the panel to try and get into the uh, armory where Tony keeps the battery or Hal keeps the battery. The only comment I had about that was that I thought it was odd that the Green Guardsman uniform, as near as I can tell, doesn't really have a lot of Kyle's uniform in it. The only thing I think of is like the wrist gauntlet. Looks kind of like Kyle's wrist gauntlets a little bit. Yeah, it, it looks more, to be honest, it looks more like the actual, the faceplate looks more kind of like the Guardian from Superman to me. Now, maybe that's me just mixing up the characters, but it doesn't it, look. It, it looks all of that or like Rocket Red a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. No, but yeah, I agree. The The only thing you can really see that might be related to Kyle are the gauntlets, but yeah. You know, Kyle had uh, had such a kind of unique costume that I think it'd be it'd be kind of I don't know it might look out of place to kind of combine it because the guardsman armor is very simple, mm-hmm. you know. So kind of putting Kyle's more ostentatious like uh, mask or or colorings on it might look a little strange, but I I don't know kind of kind of a, a workman like design. I do like the gauntlets though. That's a nice touch. Yeah, and uh, you might see a bit of the uh, the sort of boots with the sort of uh braces around the knee that yeah. kind of look like Kyle's boots. But yeah, other than that, it's, it's, it is a very simplistic style, but Kyle's outfit was very nineties. And if this is supposed to be a silver age book, it would feel very out of place. I think if we had seen the green guardsman, not just in the green silhouette here, but actually seen him in action, maybe colored, you know, may, maybe those gauntlets are, are black, you know, maybe his boots are, are black or gray, like Kyle's, you know, maybe it might look more like it. It's hard to see with just the monocolor, the monochromatic green color. Yeah. Um, the next page, we've got the introduction of Great White, which I'm assuming is an amalgamation of the Green Lantern built on the shark and... Ultimo. Oh, oh, yes. Now, that is, that is brilliant. That is that is very good. I, I I love this. This is just so much fun. Yeah, and and just the uh, the again the 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 first panel there of of Great White bursting out of the ground and setting all the cars flying in the rubble, and then in the second panel, 
first off with the the really nice kind of Neil Adams style Marvel Girl pose there for Madame Sapphire, and then the the ridiculous footnote. And whoever can tell us when old Whitey last appeared gets a big fat congratulations. Frankly, we've forgotten. <laughs> the I think the other time in the book where they're just saying, hey, you know, we're doing our best, but some of this we're having to pull it straight out of our asses. <laughs> and I like the fact that they're at least willing to admit that, yes, sometimes we are doing that. <laughs> but it's done in such a fun manner. Again, everything about this fun. Yeah, and, yeah, and uh, great, I mean, great white. And, and who would think to combine the shark and Ultimo, two characters that really don't have much in common at all. Uh, you know, the the shark, only thing I remember about the shark is at one point, didn't he have an invisible yellow shield? Uh, something to that effect. I think that was in the, uh, the Len Wein era, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, um, the, the less said about the shark, the better, I would say. <laughs> Um, the next page, this is great that they incorporate uh, Hal Stark, you know, say, you know, the the override system for him to get his armor is the Green Lantern Oath, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, that, that he has to say to the computer in order for it to uh, to voice recognize so he can get the armor. And I also like the fact that he mentions and he exposits that I don't have to wear the armor anymore, which. I don't know how long into the book was it before he could do that because it used to be when I remember reading, uh, you know, when I pick up uh, Iron Man in like the seventies, the thing was every time you were hearing Tony Stark say, "Oh, the the power is going out on my armor. I don't know if I'll be able to save myself. The piece of metal will move into my heart." So that was into the eighties. I mean, that or, or the very late seventies because that was. I want to say that was during Bob and Bob Layton and Dave Michelinie's first run that 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 went away, but I might be wrong on that. But yeah, into well into Archie Goodwin's run, he was still using that exact uh, device of uh, you know having to to plug himself in to recharge, or he was going to die. And uh, it's it it does get a little ridiculous, mm-hmm. uh, especially like when Mary like his his crazy psychic girlfriend Marianne Rogers refuses to plug him in because of some nightmare vision she had. It all gets very strange. <laughs> Lord, wow! She, she's you know Tony and Hal have a one thing in common of picking bad girlfriends. But uh, <laughs> I love Senator Ferris, and I, I should mention that he's he's specifically called Harrington Ferris because he is a combination of uh, I, I don't know his first name, but Senator Ferris obviously, and Senator Harrington Bird, who was a minor thorn in the side of Iron Man during the Silver Age, who represented the. Uh, I'm guessing kind of the uh, the left-wing senator who didn't want to spend any money on defense, so didn't want to give uh, Stark any contracts. Okay, makes sense. Also on this pa- on this page, we get uh, the senator telling Gardner and Guyrich to break the door down. And obviously Gardner is supposed to be, you would think, Guy Gardner, because we see someone who there looks a bit more like Guy in, on the later page. But who is this Guyrich character? Oh, that's... Um... Oh, I'm going to blank on his name. It's... Um... See, it's not it's not Peter Guyrich because I thought he had something to do with uh, the Sentinels, or am I thinking differently? It is, it is Peter Guyrich from the Sentinels. I think they were chosen because they both had the similar haircut. Okay, makes sense then. And and Guyrich was also a you know kind of a you know he's a uh, Guyrich besides working with the Sentinels was also for a while the U.S. government's liaison to the Avengers. Okay, 
Yeah, it it is. Yeah, it's Gyrick and Gardner, the the two G's guys with the flat top hair. You know? <laughs> completely makes sense. Yeah, but then we move on to the uh, the fight between Iron Lantern and Great White, and it's just it's just awesome. To just me, them. It, yeah, go ahead. Well, ju- just them blasting each other, and I like uh, uh, how the Iron Lantern's uh, energy doesn't come from a ring coming out of his hand, or it doesn't come from repulsor blast from his hand, but it comes out of the central chest piece out of his, uh, uh out of the, uh, lantern symbol on that. So I thought that was kind of cool. It comes out of the equivalent of the Unibeam, which I thought mm-hmm. was nice. Page 12 here with, with Great White attacking Iron Lantern and then, uh, Madam Sapphire interjecting herself. That to me is the best page in the book right there. Everything works about that. The sound effects are great. The Thoom from Great White, the Zack when Madam Sapphire lays a, a beating down on Iron Lantern. The storytelling. Take all the dialogue away and we can follow what's going on here completely. Uh, uh, there's there's this great storytelling artwork from Smith and uh, it really just works great. Great White's pose up there. I mean, just a classic giant monster sort of pose, you know, fighting the smaller superhero. And then Madam Sapphire's pose in... in uh, in panel two, I mean, that's every Silver Age girl who could fly right there. That's Marvel Girl. That's the Scarlet Witch. Mm-hmm. All yeah, of them you... look so, so uh, smooth, so dynamic. You know, little bit of sex appeal there as well. But man, that just looks so good. Yeah, the uh, top is a bit high cut around the brief area. But still, it's not it's not as bad as we'd see in some iterations of various characters from this time. This but... is This is classy. Yeah, and again, with her skin tone. It, it, her costume really reminds me of the Scarlet Witch because she had kind of the the two toned color costume like that as well, where the the crimson part was like the one piece that was real high cut up, but then the pink part was her leggings. Mm-hmm. And Marvel Girl's costume, uh, her original uh, student costume, the blue and yellow, sometimes would do this, where the guys wore trunks. Hers was cut a little bit uh, more feminine uh, before they all got their unique costumes towards the end. But, I mean, just everything about this page is great. I mean, I'm not an original art guy, but, man, I would love this page. Oh, frame, yeah. Frankly, it just looks really nice. And I, and I like Madam Sapphire's uh, kind of bitchy, uh, tell me, did that feel like a kiss or a slap when she <laughs> puts down Iron Lantern? Oh, it's just, again, the word, the word I have to describe it is fun. It is just obviously fun. Uh, he launches the great white into space using his uh you call that a unibeam to uh construct up a giant rocket and i love the thing that he says even unbelievable we're on the fringes of space and barely in the air to let the sound travel and i can still hear him it's just oh it's great storytelling by busiak oh yeah and i really like that it's it's a it's a really good combination of the visuals of their two powers now, the, the Unibeam at this point in time wasn't used as a, a weapon as often. The deal with the Unibeam was that it could emit any spectrum of photonic energy, from infrared to visible light to ultraviolet. So the beam coming out of it was commonly used, but he would use it in, a, in not necessarily an offensive manner. But then to use it to create the construct is really a nice visual combination. And I like the very, again, kind of Hal Jordan-esque construct. We need to launch something away, put a ro- strap of rockets on his back. Mm-hmm. Again, oh, it, like camera right there, you know? It perfectly works. <laughs> um, 
the the next real note I have is on the page where Star Sapphire breaks through and uh, attacks the senator, or not Star Sapphire, Madam Sapphire, and she encases the two characters, Gyrich and Gardner, in the uh, crystals. Now that's a classic uh, Star Sapphire thing that she would encase her various, uh, you know, the people that she was attacking in crystals to disable them. I mean, that's typical stuff, and I like that here. Yeah, and and I like that she's. Um got kind of high on the ho- uh, high on her horse about her feminism because she calls iron lantern boorish <laughs> uh, such you know and and said oh such well-meaning fellows but in the end only men and men is italicized and bolded <laughs> and i feel like on on panel that's um let's see that's page 16 i do like the the panel three there where she's grabbed uh senator ferris by the scruff of the neck on his jacket we get a good look again at her face and it's very much that's the design of madame mass's face with the the uh you know the the widow's peak creating the the horn head sort of look which directly mirrored iron man's horn head armor at the time but then also the very impassive look on her face because madame mass mask hid all of her emotion yeah, much like dr doom you could never really tell what was going on because all you could see was her eyes, and so it didn't bet- it, it didn't betray any of her emotions. And I think it's a good job there. Is she, you know, is she going to, uh, you know, embarrass him? Is she going to humiliate him, or is she going to tear this guy apart and put his head on a spike? We're not really sure from what she's going to do here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, the next page we have, or the next page I have notes on is the uh, is Rhodey and Happy going down to check on the lantern and getting attacked by Kyle O'Brien. And we get to see, we get to say happy Kalamaku basically beat the living guy, basically nut punch Kyle (laughs) O'Brien. Just awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and happy was a, was a bruiser like that too. You know, happy would always be, um, you know, for a while, happy was uh, Tony's driver. Mm hmm. And eventually he became the head of security, like we saw in Iron Man 3. He was head of security because he was a former boxer. He would always mix it up if somebody tried to get to his boss. You know, he at that point, he doesn't, unlike here, he didn't, at that time, he didn't know that uh, Tony was Iron Man. So he knew he had to take care of Tony because, you know, he's, uh, you know, he, he's not a fighter. He's a lover kind of thing, you know. <laughs> so seeing him uh, lay a smackdown on, on, uh, on Kyle here was, was really great. And uh, and and that he's also kind of taunting him while he's doing it. You know, oh, yeah, I thought it's nice too. Uh, on the next on the next page, I love the simple six panel grid that they've got here, and the way that they arrange the fight sequence. You've got the fight going on between the Iron Lantern and Great White up in space, and then the very terrestrial fight between Happy and Kyle down here on Earth. And they mix up the panels back and forth, and it it really flows really well. Yeah, yeah. You never you never lose a sense of. Uh, of the the flow of the story here in the mm-hmm. in the uh after that we get power disconnected which is obviously going to be a bad thing for Hal well and and again you 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 brought it up earlier is there any more of a shared trope between green lantern and iron man than running out of power at the most inopportune <laughs> exactly that is uh, again you know, you think about it on the surface, you think Iron Lantern, that's a kind of weird mashup until you start thinking of all the commonalities that they have them running out of power. You know, the, it's the, it's just really so well thought out. I can't 
say how much I am enjoying the heck out of this. It's just oh. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, That's you know, go ahead. I'll just say just utterly classic sort of thing. Mm-hmm. On the, the next page, page 19, panel one, I, I love the, the look of this where the construct armor, the giant construct armor that Iron Lantern had um, had generated to fight Great White, kind of fade, it all just fades around him. And so it's got the repeating silhouettes in green down to just him and his armor. That that looks really nice. Oh, uh, yeah. I get a sort of a, uh, again, a kind of a Neil Adams or Jim Starlin vibe off of that piece. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's, and I didn't mention this. This is uh, printed... Uh, this is printed on my, at least on mine, it's printed on the, the sort of glossier paper that I think they're using at the time. And a lot of people have complained that sometimes that glossy paper doesn't do well with the coloring, but I think the coloring in the book really looks, really looks awesome. I think it looks amazing. So I don't have any problems with the way the artwork and the coloring looks it, especially on the, the more glossy paper. It works here. Yeah. I, it really does pop. You know, we get that with the, you know, the uh, panel, Three here, where Great White chomps him with the, the the yellow impact lines, and then on the next page, when he explodes Great White from the inside, the yellow and orange uh, starburst sort of color as he the explosion tears him apart. Really, really bright, snappy colors. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very, it's like you said, it's a very simple starburst panel, but it it conveys the energy from it really well. The the coloring and the artwork, it's it's simple, but it's not. It's not infantile, I guess. It's just very clean artwork here. Yep. Um, and then we get... Uh, now, this is a story that I think I remember as well, a story where Hal or where Tony was up in space in the Iron Man armor, and he was falling to Earth, and you know, this was a big uh, sort of cliffhanger ending, and we get that kind of thing at the end of this story as well. Yeah, that, that was a bit later, because that was, again, during Bob and Dave's run. But yes, definitely. There, there's been several well-known Iron Man stories of him falling from some some high uh, height, uh, either above orbit or below orbit, of uh, without his armor having any power. And it's just, you know, well, how do you get out of this one, hero? You know. Mm-hmm. But then we get the final panel, and from <laughs> from the moon. Oh, this is the most amazingly not comedic, but just perfect mashup. Of the Mandarinesto. Yes, and my note is, why is there no issue number two? I know. Fight between Iron Lantern and Mandarinestro. And I, I love the fact that it's still the Ten Rings. It's still yeah. the Ten Rings, but they're all Green Lantern rings. And I, and I love that he's got that. It's you know he's got the the oversized head like Sinestro, but he still wears the Silver Age Mandarin's mask. And he has mm-hmm. Manchu long mustache. Yeah. Well, and uh, Sinestro had a bit of a mustache himself, but it was more of the pencil thin sort of uh, snidely whiplash type mustache going on. So, but oh my god! He's got the Charlie Brown shirt like Sinestro wore green because the Mandarin wore green robes. Mm-hmm. Over it. Oh my god! I wish we could see these two guys go at it. Oh, it it, it is really depressing the fact that. All, but you, you'd you have to think all the time and effort that they would have to spend to come up with something that would incorporate these two things. They must have spent just boatloads of time working with all this. But uh, obviously, Busiak did a great job, and he really did his research because 
aside from that one little uh, bit that we pulled out about Kyle O'Brien being an odd mashup between uh, Kyle Rayner and uh, the O'Brien character, it's it works. It all works in here really well. Well, I mean, you got to like I said, Busiek was writing Iron Man at this time, and in his, I remember in the first issue he wrote of Iron Man. At the end of it, he had a bunch of uh, little just look-ins on characters that some of which we hadn't seen in like 25 years. Like Mordecai Midas shows up as a little teaser cameo that actually doesn't really play out in in any way that make it doesn't play out in the book. It plays out, I think, in a miniseries. But you know, so. Busiek knew his Iron Man history, and clearly he knows his Green Lantern history too. And to, to find the parallels between these characters, he, despite all the differences between them, to find the common ground to work all these together and have them dovetail so nicely, it's just a joy to read. Mm-hmm. From start to finish, every bit of this rings true as just a, a lost adventure from the Silver Age of the Amalgam Universe, you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that it's it it would be, I think, very difficult to take some of these characters and mash them up together. But I think they did a perfect job here. And in some ways, I look at the Amalgam universe and look at some of the things like Batman and Wolverine, which is a mashup that they did that doesn't seem to work in any way at all. And initially I thought Iron Man and Green Lantern, how would that work at all? But it does. You sit down and read it, and it's perfect. And this is just such a joy to read. If you can go and find this anywhere, even if you can't find it in the cheapy bins. I got mine from uh, my comic shop, and I don't think I paid much more than a couple of bucks for it. But it is well, well worth it. It's great art, great storytelling, a wonderful issue. And and I tell you, the other thing, uh, most, not all, but most of the amalgam books had letter columns with fake letters yes and the 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 places that the people hail from are amalgams of real cities <laughs> so we get one we get one uh one letter writer from Philoredo, texas and uh kent city california south san york california and and one I love this Elaine Burke address withheld by request. <laughs> In other words, they just got tired of making up fakey names. Oh, this yeah, I just wanted I I looked at that. Usually I overlook the letters pages when I'm reading the book, but I turned to this and I went, "Holy crap, they've got a letters page." Holy crap, they actually had people write in letters about what was prior going on in in the Iron Lantern book. Now, I guess it does kind of make it doesn't kind of make sense because, well, this is Iron Lantern one, but maybe they're talking about the the title's showcase of suspense and what happened in there. I mean, there, there's one in here where they talk about, um, you know, Hal going to the future and taking on the identity of Arno Manning, or <laughs> the, the Iron Lantern of uh, 5700 AD. Yes, of the 5700. Yes, which obviously Hal did, uh, and. Uh, I think uh, when they were doing Green Lantern's Light, uh, the character of Salak eventually went to do that. It's the same thing. So, yeah. And then uh, and, and his girlfriend in the future, Sunset Vane, who was of at Sunset Bane from Iron Man. I don't know who the who the uh, the Green Lantern. What, what was Paul Manning's girlfriend's name? I don't oh, remember. Lord, it's I, it's been so long since I've read that issue. I can't remember, but I. Uh, I, I know it's the Solar Council of something, but it's it's escaping me right now. 
And they and another one I really like. They talk about um, the character of uh, Doctor Whiplash and his magnetic whip, who is clearly Doctor Polaris and Whiplash. Whiplash. Oh <laughs> lord! And their ties to the One Hundred. And now Whiplash worked for the Magia, and Doctor Doctor Polaris worked for the Hundred. I don't I don't remember. I much can't Polaris. I can't remember my my memory of him in the Silver Age is kind of sketchy. Unfortunately, most of my knowledge of Doctor Polaris is the rebooted one from the nineties, so I can't really say. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, this is just beautifully, intelligently written. Oh, and there's yeah, and we've got you know they they talk about some of Iron Lantern's other foes, the Black Brand. <laughs> Hopefully, they won't repurpose the Black Brand to become the. Uh, the agent of death in uh, the crossover Iron Knight. Uh-huh. Well, no, but he would. Well, the thing he would be an agent of death, but he would be a rabble rousing agent of death because that's a combination of Black Hand and Firebrand. Oh, and, there you go. And the other one I like, the Sonicorn. <laughs> the Sonar and the Unicorn. I can imagine him shooting sonic beams from his horn on his head. Oh dear <laughs> lord. This is just, this is just, you don't get books that are this clever anymore. I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay what's coming out today, but this is just, they had to put a lot of thought into this book to make it work so well. Uh, Luke, seriously, I am so, so glad that you cued me into this book. This has just been a bunch of fun reading this oh yeah i i i picked this i missed this when it came out i remember when the first round of amalgam books came out and i didn't buy anything from that i remember when the second round came out and i really wanted to get it but at the time i didn't really have a great resource as a local comic shop i was kind of buying them uh, you know i had to drive like 35 minutes into yorktown to find a shop and buy them off the rack and i didn't have a a pull list or anything, so I, I never found it. I ended up finding this. Did I get? I think I might have got this at Heroes Con in 2008, and I saw it. And I said, "Oh, this is good. This I, it must be mine." And you know, I'm I'm not I'm more of a, a Flash guy when it comes to the Silver Age of uh, and a Hawkman guy, obviously, mm-hmm. the Silver Age of DC. But you know, I, I've read enough Silver Age Green Lantern to just love this. And of course, I've 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 got a complete run of Iron Man uh, in. Not not all in singles, but I do have a complete run of Iron Man between collections and singles, and you know this just it was just just pitch perfect. Even the name of the letters page is Socket to Oa, <laughs> and the letters page in Iron Man for years was Socket to Shellhead. Yes, yes, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> oh, oh, good lord, this is just uh, kids. If you're listening to this and you have any desire to have just an incredibly fun read search this issue out it is well worth your time oh yeah if you're if you're if you're listening to just one of the guys you're obviously a green lantern fan there is so much green lantern silver age goodness mashed up with the iron man silver age goodness you'll just have a ball mm-hmm. i know it. <laughs> oh i did as well luke I appreciate you so much once again for bringing this issue to the forefront and secondly for coming on the show again. I, I'm glad to have you back. I mean, we do we do our own shows on the Two True Freaks Network together, but it's nice to have you come on my show and uh, talk a little bit about Green Lantern and also 
uh, fill me in a bit more on Iron Man more. So I, I appreciate it. Oh, I, I always appreciate coming on your show. You're, you know, just one of the guys is, is a show I've, I've loved from the beginning just because I was familiar with certain aspects of Green Lantern from the 90s, but the majority of it I didn't know. So I've, I've learned so much just listening to this show. It's one of my, my favorites. I'm glad to, always glad to, to show up on, on just one of the guys anytime you'll have me. Oh. Uh, Join some illustrious uh, uh, company for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I've written a book like Thomas DJ, but you know. I'm... <laughs> well, Thomas DJ, Thomas DJ has pretty much said anytime I do something with Guy Gardner, I kind of have to mention him. So Guy Gardner was marginally in the books today. So I'll, I'll mention Thomas here today as well. But Luke, why don't we go ahead and tell people where they can find you on the internet, what you're doing out there. All right. Well, uh, my home podcast is also part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. It's called Earth Destruction Directive. It is a podcast celebrating uh, Daikaiju, Japanese giant monsters in all of its different forms. And uh, I'm working on an episode right now. Should be up fairly soon, or maybe by the time this one goes up, it'll be up. We're taking a look at the uh, Gamera film, Gamera vs. Gauss. And uh, when that's still, we also have been reading the Marvel Shogun Warriors comic from the uh, the mid-70s. And if you want giant robots fighting in a Marvel book, that is your go-to comic. Uh, Sean and I also co-host the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror on the Two True Freaks Network. Currently, we're working through both the uh, Friday the 13th films as well as a primer on Italian horror films, which has been just uh, an eye-opener for a lot of us, I think, on mm-hmm. that. But yeah. By the time this comes out, I don't know whether we'll probably be getting pretty close to recording one of our final Italian films, which will be a very controversial film. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about that because... The, that one, I think, will uh, garner some interesting conversation. Oh, yeah. The the Italian films, to me, have been a lot of fun to do just because, uh, you know, to pull back the curtain a little bit here, I, I basically programmed those films in because I'm a big fan, and I wanted to try and, you know, uh, do some little things, little things a little bit out of the ordinary, and I've had a lot of fun doing that and, uh, and talking with, with you guys about it, so that's just been a blast. Uh, I also occasionally update my Hawkman blog, which is Being Carter Hall at beingcarterhall.blogspot.com. And I do have a pretty much defunct comic book blog, which is El Jacone's Comic Book Bunker, which you can find at El Jacone's Bunker, which is L-J-A-C-O-N-E-S bunker.blogspot.com. So, uh, like I said, if, you, if you're not sick of hearing my voice, you can go hear it some more or read my words on the Internet. I'm definitely looking forward to the next uh to, to Gamera versus Gauss. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that. That that's a fun movie. I'm I'm looking forward to to Gamera versus Girion when that comes out. Oh, because, yes. <laughs> you know what's what's funny is uh, is everyone asks when are you gonna get to Gamera versus Girion? That and you know what actually the I, I the film that more people have requested to be a guest star on than any other film any other film is War of the Gargantuas. Oh wow. I mean, I've gotten no fewer than like eight people say, hey, when you do War of the Gargantuas, nobody wants to be on Frankenstein Conquers the World, which Gargantuas <laughs> is a sequel to. Nobody wants to be on that one. Oh, everyone's like, War of the Gargantuas, yeah. <laughs> oh, sad. But right. yeah, the the Earth Destruction Directive is a great show. I'm, I've been loving you covering the Shogun Warriors because that's fun stuff that I remember reading like over at my, uh, uh, my nephew's house and uh, – or my cousin, not nephew, my cousin's house. And, you know, he had a big old stack of comics. I remember picking up issues of Shogun Warriors back in the time. So that's that's just fun to relive that stuff. 
Oh yeah, it, it's all new to me. It's before my time, so I'm I'm loving it. And then after that, uh, once we, because that book ran for 20 issues, and then there's a follow-up in Fantastic Four of all places, and uh, then we're going to be moving into the Marvel Godzilla will be our next comic series. So mm. I'm super excited for that too. I'm, both of those books have just been, oh my god, I'm having so much fun. Well, and you'll get to the uh, the first uh, Shield helicarrier crash, so that'll That's... be fun too. And Godzilla trying to knock down the Space Needle. Uh, Make it happen, legendary. Make it happen. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, we'll talk afterwards about how great that movie should be. But Luke, again, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Sean. Thank you for having me. And we will catch all of you next week on another episode of Just One of the Guys, where we will be finalizing the storyline of Emerald Knights. Issue 106, all by itself, next time. So we'll catch you in seven days. Until then, take care, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new rule 2, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast. But yeah, it doesn't seem to look like, uh, yeah, aside from the gauntlet, okay, hold on, I think my... I, I will be right back. I think my daughter's let the dogs out and didn't come back. So I will be right back. All Hold right. On. Beer, 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 get a belly. Who let the dogs out? Sean's daughters did. Who let the dogs out? Sean's daughters did. Who let the dogs out? Sean's daughters did. Sorry about that. So did you take the kids to go see the Lego movie yet? Nope. No, we haven't. Uh, the last they, they went and saw Frozen with nope. my but that was uh, we, that was the last we've gone to see. I've heard I've heard only good things about it. Yeah, I I, I took the girls this uh, this afternoon, and I was pleasantly surprised. I 
I wasn't, you know, when when I saw the advertisements for it, I wasn't enthused, you know, like the stand-ups and the theater and all that. And I was like, but it's really a very clever, it's got a, it's got a sort of treacly ending, the sort of, oh, everyone's special and everyone, everyone's okay. And it's, it's okay if you're a winner or a loser, you just have to be your best and all this. It was kind of, got kind of hippie trippy at the end but uh, overall it was just really fun i think the kids would like it if they're in any way enamored of legos they're gonna love the heck out of this movie well the thing i've always said i because I, I you know i like uh i'm a big fan of hot wheels and it's like you know to me yeah they're marketed as boys toys but you know girls can drive cars too there's nothing gender specific about diecast cars you know uh, you know, my, my niece loves uh, Hot Wheels. She's uh, she's three. She'll uh, yeah, she just turned three in November. And and my brother's funny because like, they'll go and they'll go to pick out a Hot Wheel. She'll only get muscle cars. <laughs> Don't you want this crazy looking one? No, I want this. I want this Mustang, Daddy. You know, whatever. So nice. To me, it's like you know that it because it, I've seen girls that love cars too. You know, uh, just because they they like the different cars. So it's like you know, uh, I, it, I I never. I don't hold, I think, if things are marketed well and make money, I don't hold that against them.